And we go to Psalm 119, and basically leading all the way up to these verses, David over and over and over and over again is talking about how he loves the law of the Lord. He has all these names for God's word, his precepts, his judgments. We'll talk about that. And then he comes to this part, and he gives us a clue as to what time and what part in his life he's writing this. After all the things that he's been through, let's see what he has to say. My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. Mine eyes fail for thy word, saying, When wilt thou comfort me? For I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet do I not forget thy statutes. There's the clue in verse 83. How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? The proud have digged pits for me, which are not after thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. They had almost consumed me upon earth, but I forsook not thy precepts. Quicken me after thy loving kindness, so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. And David coming down and probably saw more trials than we can ever even begin to imagine to see in a person's life next to Job. He comes back and he said, what got me through it to the ebb of my life and to the edge of death is I never forsook thy precepts, thy law, thy judgments, thy counsel, thy scripture. He's talking about the word of God. Is King David here? We say King David here is in the portion 119. Is he longing for help from his friends, from his wives, from his generals, from his advisors? No, as the king of the whole free world, he goes to God. He has an answer to anyone. He's a king. He has the whole palace. He has the whole kingdom to himself. And do you know it's amazing today? Do you know that very place where he was the king? Do you know that there's a street now called Trump Boulevard? Since Donald Trump worked with the Abraham Accord with Benjamin Netanyahu, they named a street after him right there in Jerusalem. And we see that is a wonderful blessing that our real president, who is really the president now, because he actually did win. He did win by a landslide. They just cheated. But he loved Israel. And even today, the Lord keeps his word and does not want the land of Israel defiled. David knew this. And David protected Israel. He protected it with God's law and his precepts. And isn't it amazing that we even have a president today that honored that? There's a street named after him because of that. I think that's incredible. Lisey. Right. Amen. He did. Right. That's incredible. All the way since 1948. Look at how the Lord's blessed Israel with all they've been through. But still, you look at our country, you wonder why we have water. Have you seen what's going on in the world right now? Has anybody been paying attention to the droughts of the two biggest rivers in the world? Two of the biggest rivers that feed Euro-Asia and Europe are the Brine River and the Yangtze. Both of them are drying up. They're bottlenecking and they're drying up. And even the Mississippi River, it's getting low. But the Lord, look at a Maryland. Here we, I believe, we live off the borrowed capital of many prayers, of many godly men that have been in office, and the Lord still shines down upon us and He reigns on our land. 
That alone. But what are we looking at this morning here? David is taking us to, I believe, and I think this is just a great encouragement entering into the new year. He's teaching us how he got through it. He's showing us how did he get through all of these horrible trials in his life. And there's going to be two things we're going to look at here in a minute. He longs for God's Word. He longs to undeniably praise the unfettered, omnipotent power of God's glory. That's the key word. And there's two major headings that Jehovah's glory can be categorized. And we're going to look at that here in a second. I believe that there are many ways to approach these wonderful words of David as he now is of older age, glorifying God, trusting in His Word. And you know, what is the symbol for the new year? Father time. You ever seen the pictures of Father Time in the garden? And he's got this long robe and he's with him. David's our Father Time here this morning. He's older now. And I'm going to prove it to you here in a minute. You might have missed that. Verse 83 gives us a clue. He's our Father Time bringing us into the new year today. He was of older age. He's trusting in God's word. He is our wise Father Time as we start a new year. And in this vast system of theology, the true Christian understands what David is trying to say here. He is directing us to the glory of God and showing us that is the central motif of our worship to Him. Every planet in the solar system revolves around the blazing sun, and that is a wonderful grace. The Lord gives us His teachings, and we understand as Christians that our lives orbit around the beauty of the light of the Son of God. That's exactly, the whole solar system, it revolves around the sun. Our lives as Christians and as humans, we can't live without the sun. And we, have, we, and we revolve around our bodies and our lives and our minds and our whole futures revolve around the Son of God. People that don't know the Lord and reject Him, theirs do too. The sad part is, is a rejection of Him as their lives revolve around, they're going to fall by their own weight. And so the Lord says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And I say this morning, let's do it now. Let's not wait till later. We don't have time to procrastination. The procrastination is the first cousin of failure. All right, so we have two applications here. David is teaching us that he's worshiping the Lord. He loves his word because of God's glory. And there's so many ways to break down God's glory. There's endless amounts of applications and main headings with main, like you could put Roman numerals over them. But two, I think, important classifications that bring us to an understanding and give us a good head start is number one is this inherent glory. What is that? Let me explain that. David teaches us, teaches us about praising God for his glory. Do we understand the glory of God? One of the greatest tools that I love to use when I'm studying, and I started, I think it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I love to go through Miriam's dictionary and I love to read synonyms. You can take any word and there's a drop down. Every word has, most words have met anywhere from 5 to 10 to 20, 30 synonyms. And the meanings and the vocabulary and all of the definitions come together and really give you a good understanding of what we're, we're going at. And God's inherent glory, what it does is it teaches us His attributes are in and of Himself. Now the question here this morning is, did the attributes come first or did God come first? That is a big question. What came first? And that's a tough answer because I don't really know the answer. I don't know 100%, but I know this. The attributes never existed without God and since He's eternal, they have all been sailing through eternity past. 
and they're here for us to learn in eternity present. And when we leave this earth, they're going to be there for us for eternity future. I love Steve Lawson brings, he, he uses that terminology with eternity. Because for our understanding, there is an eternity past that happened before we were ever on this earth. And we are to recognize it now and see what happens in the future. We don't go down that horrible path of evolution to say that nothing existed until it blew into space out of nothing. We exist by nothing, and then we become annihilated and we become nothing. That's totally, that gives us no purpose. That gives us no love for what the Lord does for us. So, let's look at His inherent glory. David teaches us about praising God for His glory. Do we understand the glory of God? The Word of God speaks highly of His glory, and it can be broken down into endless categories, but two major applications. First, His inherent glory means His attributes, His perfection, through His inherent, innate, imminent, and I love this word, it's another synonym, intrinsic glory. And what does that mean? If you take that all and you transfer it to this really practical word for the United States of America, you can see where our country was founded on. What do we have as the standard of our legislation in this country? What's it called? Well, that's the first. That's, that's spiritually, you're right. But it's called the Constitution of the United States. Does anybody know what the word Constitution means? It constitutes. What it does is it means something in and of its own being that it absolutely exists without any fake falsehoods. That's what it is. Constitution also is a synonym for intrinsic, imminent, innate. Look it up. The word constitutional also comes to mind. It means, like most of these words, primarily meaning being a part of the innermost nature of a person or being. And what the founders wanted us to understand is that the law of God and the Bible, going back to what Lisey just said, wanted the Constitution to be part of our innermost being, that it was in our hearts, that we would honor it. It's gotten, in my opinion, I'm for the lack of a better word, it's gotten horribly raped. For them to amend it and put the filth in it, the writers of this Constitution did not intend for these wicked people to amend it and put some of these filthy things in there. This is not our Constitution. Our Constitution is the one that protects churches, protects babies, protects the sanctity of marriage, protects God's Word, and protects our country from any, any outside forces. But the glory of God is intrinsic. It's imminent. It's part of His innermost nature and His being is all of His wonderful attributes. The whole of God's attributes emanate from Him. These attributes did not come first, but, and they were not created. They were all with Him for eternity. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So our Lord's inherent intrinsic glory reveals to us His amazing attributes. If you think of the question and answer, if you've ever read the Westminster Confession of Faith, I mean, you could just think about what's on your heart. You don't even have to go to that. What are some of his attributes? We could talk about that for a few minutes. Attributes. What were some of his, some of his uh, names ascribed to him or what he is? Omnipotent. That's a great one. One of three, omnis. Omniscient, omnipresent. All. All-powerful. Omni means all of. He's all of power, all of knowledge, all of presence. So, here's a good question. Why can't Satan defeat God? I'll give you one good answer right now with what Lisa just said. He can't be any of those things. 
He can never be omnipresent. God is always present everywhere. Satan can't be. Everything he does is sporadic, disorganized. He walks to and fro, just like we see in Job 1, and he cannot defeat and he cannot rise above the inherent glory of God. He can't do it. It's not possible. So why follow him? When many, many people do, they don't even know it. Some of his attributes, anybody else? Attributes of God. Personality, you know, works, works of the Lord. Matthew. Merciful, yep. Lisi. Eternal, excellent. Good stuff. Confession says he's just, he's holy, he's righteous. He's a jealous God. Part of his nature to be jealous. He, isn't that amazing how merciful he is to be jealous of his own creation when they don't worship him? Yes. The truth. The unbridled truth. That's right. Truth hurts, doesn't it? Sometimes it does. And when we're talking about God, we need to give the truth. Lisey. Oh, that's, that's, that's piercing. That, well, Teresa, that, that's, yeah, that, that's a good question. But what Teresa reminds me of, when you said that, that is actually the last attribute that brings together all the attributes in the question and answer of Westminster Confession in the larger catechism, what is God? Wisdom, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. Those are the last five attributes, I remember that. And there's so many more. There's a whole drop-down of attributes. And he is the whole of them all. And where, do the, where does the, the, the thrice holy God fit into this? God is the whole of his attributes. Christ carries them out and the Holy Spirit directs them. That's kind of a good way to remember it. And they're all three in one. That's why we are not Unitarians. We don't believe in just one presence of a God and we don't mock and blaspheme the triune God. That's what the Unitarians do. They, they mock the Trinity. They do not believe in the Trinity. They don't believe it exists. They don't believe there's three persons in one. It's a Unitarian. One. That means there's one God, and it's usually in a Unitarian Universalist. It's the God that they create by their, own, by their own false idols. That's usually what it really means, if you look at it. Go and look at some of their creeds sometime, if you have the guts and you have the stomach to do it. Our Lord's inherent intrinsic glory reveals us His amazing attributes. Psalm 3311. Charlie, can you look up Psalm 3311? How about Jerry? Can you look up Psalm chapter 93, verses 1 and 2? We're going to look at a couple verses here, showing the glory of God. And by the way, the word glory shows up all throughout the King James Bible, no less than 371 times all throughout Scripture. Shows how important that word is. That's important. All generations. What does that mean? Our Lord lives through all generations. How many false gods have lived since the very beginning of this earth and live and now are, are still watching and guiding and comforting us now? We have this holy, inerrant, intrinsic God who through all generations watches over His people. It all never stops working. Jerry, if you have Psalm 93 verses 1 and 2. 
Thou art everlasting, thou art forever and ever and ever and ever, and there is no end to our Lord. That's, how, that, that's part of His glory. Here's a very familiar one, Psalm 96.3. How about Nancy? Could you look that one up? Psalm 96.3. This is a very familiar one. And somebody tell me why when you hear it. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Does anybody know why that's important here to this church? Think really hard. You might have to look upward a little bit. That's it right there. That's the Bible verse there. And you know who that Bible verse was picked by one of our founding matriarchs of this church, Mrs. Lynn Anderson, and it's on her grave. It's on her, it's on her marker. She's the one that picked that verse for that, for that uh, stained glass window up there. And it's very same verses on her marker up at uh, Highview Memorial Cemetery up there. She's, she's buried right next to my mom, right about 20 feet down from my mother. And it says that right on her, on her marker. Declare ye his glory. And so what that brings us to is our next point of interest for David teaching us here. I would have liked to have gone more expository on verse by verse, but I think this is so important. We'll go to that in a minute. What is the name in the Old Testament in Hebrew for the word glory? And that's, a good, that's a very important. That's the cloud. That's a, that's a, that is a representation of another instrument to teach us His glory. That's fan- the Shekinah cloud of glory. That's fantastic. But there's a word, starts with a K, it's called kabod. That is the word that is used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Now there's a New Testament word called doxe. That's in the Greek. And they both have, good, they both have extremely important meanings, but they're both definitions of the glory of God. The Old Testament word kabod... The standard lexicon or the arrangement means if you generalize it, which is in and of itself incredible, before you even get to God's holy attributes that we see in the confession, it means heaviness, burden, riches, reputation, importance, glory, splendor, distinction, and honor. Those are the lexicons, the arrangements of what the word glory means from the Hebrew. So if you went and you took Hebrew, this is what you would be learning about the word glory and where the word kabod comes in. It's so important. And the New Testament word is doxe, or that means importance, greatness, renown, or significance. Isn't it amazing how the word significant comes up? I find that fascinating because then we talk about the aseity of God. Does anybody ever heard about that term, his aseity? Does anybody know what that means? You would think that that is kind of a demeaning, condescending term, Lisi. Yes. Yes. Or even if it existed. That's a good point. Yes. His aseity. For the Lord to give us that word... And to let us feast upon that as created beings, you would think that a God that would have to give that word would be furious that he would even have to declare it. What it means is declaring that he actually exists. And if you go all the way back through all of the narratives of Moses and you, talk, you see Moses' conversations with the Lord, he's being patient with Moses, he's being patient with the people of Israel, and he tells 
Moses, you tell the people. He, Moses' question, remember, remember the five objections. The first one was, he says, that I'm, he says that, how am I going to explain to these people about you? How am I going to tell them that you even exist? They've been worshiping false gods for 400 and some years. What do I tell them? The Lord could have wiped them right off the map and says, you mean I have to actually explain that to you? But he says, you tell them I am. Just tell them that. I am. I am that I am. I am hath sent you. I am the God of your fathers. And then he comes back in chapter 5 and says, you tell Pharaoh I am the God of Israel. And you, they're my people. They're not his people. And now he's coming up against me. And he can fight and he can kick and scream all the way to the middle of the Red Sea, but I'm taking my people back. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I am. And that is his aseity. His aseity is in and of himself, in his own being, that he does exist, that he is significant. You see that? That is the second part that transfers into our responsibility knowing the intrinsic, inerrant, present God. And that is, the second part is this. His imputed glory or ascribed glory. His witnessed glory. And what that means is that He's such a wonderful God that He gives us an opportunity to reveal His glory and to thank Him for saving us, that He would provide an atonement and a salvation for us. His imputed glory is our responsibility to worship Him. We are to ascribe to Him the attributes, the names, the position that He is in. We are to ascribe those names. We are to impute them. We are supposed to identify Him who He is. How does He say to do that? Anybody? How does he tell us to do that? I can, tell you, I can tell you how he tells us to do it by telling you what we're not supposed to do, and I think it's very obvious, but what does he tell us to do to ascribe his glory? Lisey. Yes. Right. Right. Amen. That's a great point. What do we not do? We do not worship Him by staying home and not worshiping Him. We do not worship Him by closing the doors to our church. We don't worship Him by bringing in <coughs> local bands and them coming in and banging away on their bongos for two hours. That's not how we worship Him. He says, enter ye into His gates with praise. Declare His glory. And the way we declare His glory is the exact way that Jesus Christ declared His glory on this earth. The way He worshipped Him. We are to praise Him. We are to enter into His gates with praise. Brother Jerry and I, we've been texting back and forth for the last three days. Brother Jerry Gavin, you're going to love this. I'm going I'm to mention it. If I can, I'm hoping I can remember. So, but I've got to write it down. I'm going to mention the announcements this morning. He's been called away this morning. Brother Jerry is an ordained elder. And he was, actually, he was actually forced out of a church because he defended the Reformed faith. The very foundational principles we love, he defended them, and he was basically asked to leave that church. He loves this church. We've been praying together. He has been called away today to go all the way down past Frederick in Adamstown, Maryland, to preach at a little church that lost their pastor. And he's down. They have no pastor. They have nobody to, according to what he told me Wednesday, they have nobody to lead the service. And he's down there. 
he's kind of nervous because he's going to be preaching from Romans 11, verses 33 to 36 today. Those are the foundational verses for the Reformation. He says, I don't know how it's going to be received, but I'm going to go do the best I can. And we've been praying back and forth. Why does he feel this way going into any church, feel a little bit in tre- you know, trepidation about speaking the truth? Because that's what's all around us today. People are not giving God the glory, and he's going in there to do the job. He told me exactly what he's going to preach. I love it. He's ready to go in there. He's going ready. He is going to go in there and give them the truth. He is going to impute the truth. He's going to ascribe the truth. And that is the second part of this two-part of God's glory is to ascribe it to the Lord. Let's look at that a little more. To be perfectly practical in this application of imputation of God's glory as our responsibility to ascribe it to God, it's like a gold bar or diamond with ascribed intrinsic value. It's not a fake. God is not a figment or a fabricated imagination. We are to give the perfect truth. We are not to give some kind of like blustery, you know, blustery little frilly thing and tell people everything's beautiful. I mean, if I find it very interesting, and this is a rabbit trail, I'm sorry, I do that. I find it very interesting that some of the best ministries that you listen to have open question and answer sessions so that anyone can call them, talk to them, go to their Bible conferences, and specifically ask them point-blank questions about Scripture. You know who I don't see doing that? These prosperity gospel people. I never see them getting together with a Bible conference and allowing people to ask them questions. I just thought of that the other day. Because I was listening to a question and answer session with Derek Thomas and Dr. Sproul and Burke Parsons and Chris Larson and Steve Lawson and Sinclair Ferguson was there to put a good old Scottish accent to the Bible verses, love it. And I'm sitting there and I mean, just to listen to them for an hour, it's like a a whole semester in college in theology, listening to them. But have you ever seen a Bible conference where everybody, I'm talking about what I just read here about being fake. Can you imagine having a question and answer session with Joyce Myers, Paula White, Joel Alstein, and having them all lined up? The first question I'd like to ask is, why are you sending your people to hell because you're too afraid to talk about it? That's what I'd like to ask them. Lisa. Right. They'd be clawing each other's eyes out. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry to mention names, but the Lord says in the book of Ephesians, name names, rebuke and repute. This is what we see out there. How are they given the intrinsic, inerrant, ascribed, and imputed glory to God when they're not telling the truth? How can you do that? Teresa said, what was his attributes? One of them is truth. I think that is an inference for us that we are to approach Him in spirit and in truth. Paul says that in Acts chapter 20, towards the end of that chapter, after he raises Eutychus from the dead. He says, I spoke in spirit and in truth, and I gave the whole counsel. He says, I didn't leave anything out. How would you like a doctor going into surgery, getting ready to do brain surgery, and you tell you, well, I'm going to do a little bit of this and that, but I'm not going to give you the whole counsel of my knowledge. I'm going to give you half of it. You might come out of it okay. You want the whole part, don't you? Don't you want all of his knowledge? So we see this. This is man's 
this is the second part of God's glory is for us. It's mankind's responsibility to ascribe, witness, worship God, and assign all glory to Him in word and deed. To worship God as He is commanded. It is the epicenter of God's saving purpose. The revelation and and magnification of His glory. The more man holds God's inherent glory, the more man imputes glory to God. It's as a life lesson. The higher praise we give our Lord, the higher joyful and purposeful life we enjoy. We give Him a base love and we give Him a base attention. That's what we get. This is a lovely passion that our Lord displays. He reveals to us inherent, inerrant glory so that we may ascribe glory to Him and there is nothing He won't do for us even in the worst of our times. There's nothing He won't do for us. He proves that. It's not surprising as Paul finishes in the first 11 chapters of his incredible letter to the dispersed Jews in Rome by writing this. Romans eleven thirty three to 36 Somebody look that up and read that. This is what Brother Jerry's preaching on this morning. Romans eleven thirty three to 36 Sounds like a psalm. Listen to this when you read it. It sounds like David speaking. Listen to this. Thank you, Lisa. What does it say in that last phrase? To whom be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And you know, literally scared the living daylights out of me when I was about eight or nine years old, being in, a, being in a biblical devotions where it was actually my father giving the devotions and he goes, just think about hell. And you drop into hell. You know what he said? It's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and you never get out. In troubled times, David is longing for the salvation in God's Word. The heart of a Christian longs to hear the prophecies, the prophets of old testified of, the coming of the Messiah, the messianic prophecies through distress and trials. The souls of the faithful fainteth to see the salvation of which the prophets testified. Prophets testified. First Peter one, Peter brings this all together wonderfully. He says, First Peter one seven, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, because of course he had already resurrected, he was on the right hand of the Father. Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Does anybody remember last week's message? Does anybody remember? It's amazing. I can't tell you how many times I've delved into a Sunday school class and Pastor Olson has the very same verses in his message and I have no idea what he's preaching about. We were both talking about Elizabeth and Zacharias. And there was a small handful of people that knew what it meant that Jesus was going to land on this earth. They knew who he was. Why? They listened to the prophets of old. They listened to the Old Testament. And they quoted it. The most quoted messages from Jesus Christ himself, other than telling us to fear not, over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
was, why aren't you listening to the prophets? He asked, we're going to get be starting that this Wednesday. Thank the Lord, the road to Emmaus. We're going to be watching, we're going to be looking really close at the road to Emmaus when Jesus appears out of nowhere. And he eventually, I'll give some of it away, he says to Cleophas, were you not reading the Old Testament? He has said that to Nicodemus. You're a Jewish ruler. Why aren't you reading the prophets? Why aren't you paying attention? If you read, if you study, you will have the ability to prophesy. You can tell people what the end times are going to be like. You can tell people what's ahead. And that's incredible. He, David was one of those prophets, and he learned from the prophets. He was there. When health fails, when we, lo- when we lose loved ones, when life is not going as expected, we see David is going through this. And when our bodies age and our eyes fail, Matthew Henry says, Yet the faith must not fail, for the vision is for an appointed time, and at the end it shall speak and shall not lie. What beautiful words. How do we know that David's old here? Verse 83. What does it say in verse 83? Somebody read that. Psalm 119. How do we know that David is in his old age here? Matthew. Yet do I not forget thy statutes. What does it mean to be a bottle in the smoke? That's the clue. And I tested this against a lot of the theologians and some of the commentaries. What was a bottle made out of? Now today, of course, we have these titanium metal bottles, so we're not talking about some new thermos, a Yeti thermos or something like that. What did they use back then? Leather. Clay. That has cracks in it. Leather. He said it was like hanging, what they used for a water bottle was leather. And they did use clay for a pot, but for just regular use, like if he was on his horse or he was in one of his chariots or whatever, they would have to use leather. And what he's saying is he would hang it up, basically, maybe in the, uh, in the opening of the pal, wherever he goes, and there would be smoke, there would be fire, firewood, that's how they heated it. And that leather would crack. And so he's saying, my face is all cracked now. It's all, it's all wrinkled. My, my beautiful face. He, he was a beautiful man when he was young. And the Bible says that. It says that about Joseph. It says that about Solomon and Absalom. They were beautiful men. Had no blemish. Full heads of hair. They were young. They were smart. They were big and vet. And all of a sudden he's saying, I've lost all that. But there's one thing I haven't lost. I haven't lost my relationship with the very one that picked the stone out to put in my slingshot that knocked down Goliath when he was mocking him. That's what he's saying. And, and that, I can, I can take that over and over, example, example, exa- a, 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 example after example. He's saying, very same God that brought me through every war and I've never lost a battle, that's the very same God. He's saying, I don't care that I'm old. I don't care that I'm dying. I will not turn my back on the Lord, just like Job. And I do believe, I personally believe, that if you read David's words, he quotes Job a lot. I believe he had an incredible connection to Job because a lot of his literature sounds just like it. It's incredible. He says, The soul of the faithful fainteth. When health fails, we see that the, David shows us where to go. We see he, what season is it. Where, where is David now in his life? He's older now. He speaks of this bottle. As a, it's a wineskin or it's leather. Present-day picture is what they had. Age afflicts us. It takes away, we just, as we get older, 
and I don't even really care, in any part of our time of our life, as we get older, we just start to lose things. That's, that's what life is about. And it's good for us to realize that because maybe it won't hurt so much. It does. But we know where to go. We see that David had evaded the sword of his own son. He loved Absalom. He conquered his enemies. But he knows he cannot evade the grave. It conquers us all. How do, you react, how do we react to this inevitable foe? We never forget the statute of God. David teaches us. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. And you know what that also means? He will not withhold His protection and His blessings in our trials when we get older and when we face the grave. He'll be there. He will be there. Just like we were watching that movie last week. Matthew got it out watching that movie, Pilgrim's Progress. We were talking about that Wednesday night. And seeing Christian and how he separates from his wife and his kids. He was dying. That's what it's about. It's his walk to death. He could not depend on his wife to save him. But he could depend on the Lord to save her, and he did. Christiana, she wound up being in heaven with him. And he goes over the river of death, and the Lord's there. He goes through all the trials of the spawn, the mountains, and all the lions were there. God is there. He goes through all of it. His friends weren't there. His mother and father weren't there. His wife couldn't even be there. But Christ was through every last step of that walk on that narrow road that leads to light. The, all the way till he met him at the very end. And he had his angels welcoming him into that celestial city. And this is what David's talking about. David does not pray to become some kind of a some superhero or some kind of vigilante. He prays to give him strength. And this is where he has his peace. The Lord will repay us. Paul says it in Romans 12, 18 and 19. If it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And David turned that over to the Lord even in his worst of times. In verses 85 to 87, we see that they had did, there were pits dug for David. He always spoke about that. If you read the book of Psalms, you see it recapitulated over and over again how his enemies were coming after him. When he says, he says in Psalm, Psalm 6, he says, I remember, I think it's verse 4, 5, and 6, Return, O God, and deliver my soul. Save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance in thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groanings. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed with grief because of all mine enemies. And he says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord shall hear my supplication. He, he says it's not something up for grabs. He says, the Lord will hear my supplication. He will receive my prayer. And he says, let all mine enemies be ashamed suddenly. The very last verse. And David comes back in these last two verses and he says, they've dug pits for me. They hate me. But the key to his preservation of all that he's talking about, in verse 88, quicken me after thy loving kindness, so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. That testimony is his ascribing God his glory. His imminent, intrinsic, inerrant glory. That's what he does. <clears throat> they dig pits for David. Exodus 21.33 And if a man shall open a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit and not cover it, an ox or an ass fall therein, the owner of the pit shall make it good and give money unto the owner of them, and the dead beast shall be his. 
David used that term pit many, many times. He spoke about the jealousy. He spoke about the hate for him. He spoke about the horrible death of his son and how Absalom, before he tried to kill his father, he died a very premature age. You know, the Lord said David was a man over his, after his own heart. And even when his son came after to kill him and to take his wives, the Lord went after Absalom. He did. And when people come after those that love the Lord, woe be unto them. Look at the trials that are out there. Look at the people that are coming after the Christians. They hate them. They're out there in politics. They're doing everything they can to eradicate any, any, any semblance of Christianity. They're going up against God's people. Don't be angry at them. Pity them. Because when the Lord has the last say, I, I wouldn't want to be them. Going into the new year, I'm going to leave you with this. David talks, you're looking at a man's life coming down to the very end. David died in his 70s. He's probably real close to that now. And when he talks about all of the events in his life, and it's amazing how they all happen without social media, but without, throughout all of his life, he has these, these battles that he fought. His brothers came up against him when he went to fight Goliath. He had his dear friend Jonathan die. And Saul died. He loved Saul. He loved him. Even though Saul was a disobedient wretch against God and did horrible things, he loved him. And with all of this, when it all comes down to it, at the end and the edge of his life, he says, what brought me through all of this are the precepts of God. His word, his testimony, his judgments, his law, his scripture, all point to God's word. And that's what we do going into the new year. We're going to trust God's word. And the Lord's going to bring us through that Red Sea and he's going to part it. And he's going to keep parting it. And I guarantee you, you won't be sorry. Let's finish with prayer this morning. Matthew, can you close us? Thank you.